Life's soundtrack can feel a bit like... But you can still change the station. With Delta Airlines, you can turn your soundtrack into a global chorus. Delta. Keep climbing. In today's economy, more people than ever are looking to buy and sell businesses. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Deal Board, presented by Transworld Business Advisors. Straight talk about real deals and real people. Listen to stories, interviews, and expert advice to help your business sale, merger, or acquisition process. Now, here are your business exit experts, Andy and Jessica. Hey, welcome back to The Deal Board, and we have a great episode today. We are talking about technology, and I love this subject, I tell you, and I'm, I'm sighing because, you know, anybody that comes to me with a technology company, whether it's making money or not making money or, 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 you know, it's a, it's just an idea in their head. They all think that they could sell for a hundred million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, and today uh, we have two interviews, one with somebody who actually did sell for a hundred million dollars. Yeah. So we have Aaron Houghton, uh, who's a serial entrepreneur. I think every tech entrepreneur is a serial entrepreneur. Um, But he founded and started iContact, which is an email um, newsletter software um, that's been one of the largest players in the industry. And then we also have Matt Jaffe joining us and he's founded a number of different tech startups. But one, my rounding is specifically focused on the healthcare industry. And the second proof is a legal tech venture. Um, And I think, you know, both of these interviews are fantastic, especially if you're in the tech community and industry. But the overarching message I got from each of them was that they found a problem and a way to solve it for a customer. They were listening to their customers and were able to provide a solution that was cheaper, faster, and better to their customer in that industry. And that's how and why they were able to scale their companies. So we talk a little bit about the founding of each company and kind of the journey and then eventually towards the exit, which like you mentioned, Andy, I mean, exits in tech companies, you know, it's it's kind of a shot in the dark when it comes to valuation, right? It is absolutely a shot, shot in the dark. I mean, like you said, if they find a way to disrupt an industry or they find a way to solve another company's problem, you could even, you know, solve it on a small scale. And then all of a sudden you, you know, show it to a company that like Google or Instagram or, you know, something that's going to make their lives easier, make their customers come to them faster or better. I mean, whatever it is, and it could blow up, the valuations could go huge. And then listen, I, I think they're some of the biggest losers in tech too. Certainly seen a lot of people that come to us with apps or with um, software or SAS, uh, you know, and they come to us after putting millions of dollars into a business or into a technology and just run out of gas. And they're looking for us to liquidate it. And so, I mean, it, it is truly a huge gamble. Uh, but if you do do well in tech, you can make a big score uh, and even if you have a business that's doing okay, uh, it's a very highly desirable business to buy. So we're, you know, we're seeing the three to four multiples, certainly uh, for small business. And then, you know, when they get bigger, you can, you could get the five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 times, you know, multiples in a multi-million dollar uh, sales. But, you know, again, it's, it's really kind of a crapshoot and it, and it really depends what you're doing in the tech world. Right. And I think these two entrepreneurs we talked to today talk a lot about a lot of different things. But, you know, one thing um, to keep in mind is that when you're building these tech companies and, you know, you don't have to go through for the hundred million dollar exit. And if you're operating a profitable company that has some EBITDA value, like you said, Andy, still these small tech firms are still valuable. You know, they're not going to be the unicorn exits that you read about in the Wall Street Journal, but there's still some great value in there. And and you can really walk away with a profitable exit for you and your company or your investors, if you should have some. Yeah, I've been talking to some of the tech startups and some of the incubators out there. And I've, I've talked to some of the universities, uh, local universities here in Florida that have like their own tech startup. And I've told them, I said, listen, uh, if you get lucky enough to get a Snapchat and you're going to exit for a billion dollars, you know, good for you. But there's certainly going to be some technologies and some software and some services that you could come up with that are going to, you know, they're going to get 
some bandwidth and some traction and they're going to have a half a million dollars of earnings or a hundred thousand dollars of earnings and they're highly desirable small businesses. So uh, we're going to talk about all those things today. And and there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's never more opportunity in tech. You know, I, I had some people saying once upon a time that they thought the tech world is dead because you can't compete with Google, you can't compete with Amazon, but that's not true. Right. It's not. It, actually, you can work with them, right? And even grow your business bigger. So I think we should jump into it. Hopefully you get a lot of information out of today and learn from the two great entrepreneurs we have on the show. Great. Looking forward to it. Transworld Business Advisors is the world's largest business brokerage and mergers and acquisitions firm with over 500 brokers in nearly 200 offices worldwide. Transworld's team handles thousands of business sales every year. To be connected with a qualified business broker or learn more about the buying and selling process, visit tworld.com forward slash the deal board or call 888-719-9098. Welcome back, everybody. And as you know, today we're talking to technology entrepreneurs that have had successful exits. So joining me is a friend of mine, Aaron Houghton, who's a serial entrepreneur He's also the co-founder of iContact Corporation and served as the executive chairman from 2003 to 2009 and chairman of the board from 2010 to 2012. iContact is one of the world's leading email marketing companies with over 1 million business users. Under Houghton's leadership, iContact made multiple appearances on the Inc. 500 list of America's fastest growing private companies before being sold to Vocus in February 2012. Aaron, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jessica, for having me. Well, so I gave our listeners a brief uh, intro to you and what you've done, but why don't you expand upon that and just tell our listeners who you are and what you've done in the past and kind of, you know, what your focus is now. Yeah, absolutely. I think of myself as a a serial entrepreneur. Um, I learned to write software as a 16- and 17-year-old kind of a hobby. And uh, and really took to it. I liked the logic of it. I was good at math. I was good at logic um, when I was younger. And and that kind of code, um, writing code allowed me to bring that skill set into something that was valuable in the business world. So the first website I ever built in uh, 2000, not not 2000, 1996, probably, um, I built it for a fictitious shopping mall. And I think that tells you a little bit how my mind works wasn't for a personal project or sports or anything else that I was into at the time. Um, and my career is, is sort of looked kind of like a venture capital portfolio at this point. Um, and I, I didn't realize that until recent years, uh, be, you know, kind of taking my software skill set into building companies. I started to realize that people that invested in companies and tried to filter and find the best companies to put their capital into um, never assumed that they would have a perfect record. They always assumed that about maybe one out of 10 in the, in the venture capital world would be successful. And um, luckily, I, I was one of those people that just started enough companies that uh, the odds worked out for me as well. So I started 11 software companies over my 21-year career as an entrepreneur. Uh, and now I'm spending a little time, taking some time off and uh, writing a book about some of my stories as an entrepreneur and um, both the positive experiences and also some of the downsides of the amount of stress and, um, and burnout uh, and challenges that, that I experienced personally as an entrepreneur while, while building my companies. And so uh, bringing that story to the masses to try and help people maybe build companies in a more mindful way than I did in the past. Awesome. And I, I love uh, that. I love that project. And we definitely want to hear more about that later in the interview. So I know eye contact has kind of an interesting background story and how you founded it and kind of uh, the whole history of how you got from founding to sale. Give us a little bit about that piece, that story of eye contact and yourself. Yeah. You know, as I mentioned, I started writing code when I was really young. And the first thing that, that made me actually decide to approach a business (laughs) if I could solve some of their problems for them with, with software um, was my dad was a professor at the time and he was just really interested in how new technologies uh, would affect teachers in middle grade education. So how could, how could those teachers use uh, emerging technology, computers, the internet really at the time in the mid nineties uh, to improve what they were using, the techniques they were using to, to teach students. And so as part of that, dad put together this little report for me. I was a high school student at the time. 
Um, and I was mowing my neighbor's lawns for $20 per yard in the, the hot North Carolina summer heat. Uh, it was absolutely sweltering work. And Dad put together this little report for me about this kind of um, new internet industry. And uh, it was really around a couple of uh, service companies that had been created to design websites for businesses. Because this was a time when businesses didn't necessarily have websites and they were just starting to kind of move in that direction. And so my dad put this little five-page report together like any professor would do. Uh, and I sat down and, and read it one morning and thought, oh, what is crazy dad bringing to me now? Uh, what is he trying to push on me? And so I read this thing and I'm like, one thing catches my, my eye, which is that a lot of these firms are charging 35 to $50 an hour. And, and that's what clicked. Yeah. <laughs> I was mowing lawns for $20 a yard, which wasn't necessarily $20 an hour. And I thought to myself, man, sitting inside in air conditioning and making 35 to $50 an hour as a 17-year-old sure sounds a lot better. So I started solving problems for businesses. And one of my clients that, um, that I was, had built a website for was in uh, the tourism business. They operated um, a couple of cottages and cabins in um, a really tourism-driven market in, in Western North Carolina in the Asheville area. And I built a website for them, and I built an ability for them to update uh, some dynamic text on the homepage, which really in 1998 now that would be, um, was really, really unique. So the website owners could go in and update a little news paragraph at the top of their website, really anytime they wanted to. And that sparked the idea um, from Michelle, the owner, uh, approached me and said, hey, we're putting these updates on the website. Um, is there some way that we can email them, them out to all the people that come and stay at our cottages? And at the time, they were using printed direct mail, mailed to the U.S. Postal Service to send not a weekly or a daily update, of course, but maybe a monthly or a quarterly update out to the thousands of customers that they had built up over, I think they'd had this business for about 25 years at that point. And they had been really crafty in that for the last maybe two or three years when people checked in, they'd ask them to write down their email address on a pad of paper at the check-in desk mm -hmm. in the main office on the property. So they had this list of email addresses that were already ready to go, which made them really uh, kind of a, an early uh, genius in terms of kind of how small businesses were thinking about marketing at the time. And so I was able to take that list of people they had permission to contact already and help them have those messages that were they were updating on their homepage um, go out to that whole list. And so they wouldn't update it, you know, twice a day anymore, but they'd do it maybe weekly or monthly. And the way their business worked is uh, customers would only come see them during the fall. There's about a 90-day window in the fall in Western North Carolina where the leaves change color. And everyone from the southeastern United States, from Alabama, from Florida, from southern Georgia, um, their leaves don't change colors, so they all drive up to vacation in western North Carolina to see the leaves change colors across the different elevations in the mountains. And so for the rest of the year that was not in those 90 days, they never really saw their customers. And this allowed them to now stay top of mind for just a couple of dollars a month. I think I charged them maybe $20 a month to, to have this as an ongoing service, um, where what they've been doing with direct mail before, they were spending thousands of dollars a month you know, cutting down trees, making paper. <laughs> printing yeah. their newsletter on it and mailing it out with a stamp. It costs a lot of money. And it's really cool. Yeah, I, I love it. I think that my favorite part about that story is like you listen to your customer, develop something that your customer requested and then it, it grew, right? So then, you know, that was the beginning. And then what, what did it grow to? Yeah. So that business just was, was absolutely unbelievable. And I think you're probably really onto something there because I've had plenty of other businesses I've started since then. Um, that did not grow to the, the scale that iContact did, um, where I've decided that, you know, I've become good enough at entrepreneurship that I'm going to come up with a great idea and try and build something that everybody doesn't know they need yet and then show them how cool it is. And that's way harder. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell you what happened with the iContact business was people just started telling each other about it. Michelle was talking to some of her friends and this guy named Wayne contacted me who sold um, kind of like pet products online and had an e-commerce store. And um, he saw the immediate need for this in his business. Um, and people just started telling people. So the early marketing for this product was literally my first customer talking to a couple people and those customers talking to a couple other people. And I was still running the, the web design business at the time. And so I was now uh, a college student, um, kind of freshman, sophomore year at the University of North Carolina. And I'm starting to get inbound phone calls from people that I've never <laughs> heard of before asking if they can use this product. So I'm driving home to my parents' house in Western North Carolina. It's about a four hour drive on Thanksgiving break as a college student. And uh, this is the first time that I had uh, spoken with Wayne, who Michelle had referred to me. 
And Wayne asked me a question, which I really wasn't prepared to handle, which is how much does this product cost? And for Michelle, since I built a website for, I'd given her this $20 a month price. And, um, I couldn't really, I had no idea what it cost. I had no idea how to price <laughs> the product. And so I just came up with the biggest number I could possibly think of, which was $400. Um, and, uh, he said for the year and I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so when I got back from Thanksgiving break, he had literally mailed a check for $400, uh, to my dorm room at the university, <laughs> my dorm room mailbox. And there it was. So I set up access for him to use the product and this sort of pattern continued for a couple of years until I met my business partner, which was my junior year as a college student. And my business partner, Ryan had real experience building uh, marketing campaigns. He worked for a nutritional company in high school as an intern and figured out how to do SEO and some other types of kind of guerrilla marketing tactics. And uh, he started putting these uh, techniques in play for the email marketing business that I had built. Um, at the time, it was called IntelliContact Pro. It had lots of syllables in it. It was mm-hmm. kind of hard to say. So we wanted to make it sound really cool because we were a very small company. And um, those marketing tactics just started to work. They drove in a couple hundred customers in the first couple months. People would search for email marketing in Google, find our product as one of the, the early products in the space, come to our website, sign up for a 15-day trial. And then about 20% of those people after or at some point within or after the 15 days would upgrade to a paid plan, which on average over time uh, turned out to be about $35 a month. And those customers would stay with us for about three and a half to four and a half years, which meant there was a couple thousand dollars um, on the table from every new customer that we could acquire. So we continued scaling uh, that business. We took every dollar that we made from those customers and invested it back in advertising. A couple years in, we raised uh, $3 million from a venture capital firm and continued to pump those dollars into our marketing channels. And um, we grew revenue pretty quickly. So our first year's revenue, an entire year's worth of effort with Ryan and I working full-time on this business. We made $13,000 in revenue. Second year was 350,000. Third year was over a million at 1.3, wow. which even looking back is amazing to me now. Um, fourth year was upper two, then it goes 2.7 or 2.8. Year five was 6.1. And um, in year nine, we topped out at right under $50 million. This is at $49.8 million. And this is all subscription, recurring revenue with an almost 90% gross margin. So software is a great business to be in. You've got predictability in the revenue. You've got extremely high margins. Um, and, uh, that's when we sold the business. That's amazing. So this is a tangent and, and something I didn't plan on talking about, but you've talked about it before. And I think it's uh, really important because like when we go to sell businesses, a lot of buyers are like, I want a recession resistant business. Can you talk a little bit about how I contacted during the 08, 09 recession? It's really incredible to think about looking back on it. And it's a trend that we just completely missed on the front side of it. In fact, we thought we were just really good at marketing because our marketing suddenly got amazingly better in 2008 and 2009. Mm-hmm. And a couple things happened. One, we just had the really good luck that we didn't raise money in our first three years of business because we had cash coming in from these customers that we were generating pretty cost effectively through digital marketing. And we were using that cash to, um, to you know, grow the business as, as fast as we could. And because of that, we waited a couple of years to raise capital. So we ended up raising in 2006 and 2007, which happened to be, as you remember, right before the global recession. Right. Yep. So we had, we had fresh coffers of cash, whereas other, other, other of our competitors at the time just happened to have raised at different times. And some of them had raised a couple of years earlier and maybe were a little lower on cash. So we had good cash reserves to spend. And then um, the second problem is, is that most businesses out there really started pulling back their advertising spend when the global recession started because they were worried they wanted to conserve cash. We just had so much cash. We had a couple million dollars in our bank account that honestly we didn't even need. It was there for growth. And mm-hmm. so if we couldn't grow, it would just be kind of sitting around diluting our balance sheet because we'd given up some equity to take this or diluting our cap table. We'd given up some equity to raise the money. So we started putting it out there is, is you know, not, not aggressively, but in little pieces and testing and seeing what the results were. And what we found was that um, we were the low-cost alternative to everything else. I mentioned it earlier in my introduction that, you know, a lot of our customers, like my original customer, Michelle, were moving away from printed direct mail and coming to email marketing and being this kind of like young tech nerd in my head, I thought, well, of course it's just better, right? That's why they're yeah. moving over. It's, mm-hmm. You have trackability, the messages go out really quickly, you don't have to print stuff out, which is annoying, you don't have to use paper and mail things, which is slow, and who knows if they even get there half the time. 
So I just thought our solution was better. It turns out our solution was also way cheaper, which right. I knew, but that wasn't really what I was thinking about. And so um, the recession forced all of our prospective buyers in this huge addressable market that we had to rethink how much they were spending on printed newsletters. And they started looking for digital ways to distribute their newsletters to their customers. Um, 08 and 09 were our fastest years of growth. Um, and we were at around uh, 15, like 14 and a half million and then 26 million in revenue in those two years. So that would be from, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, we had about yeah the upper six years, six million uh, to like fourteen something million to twenty six million right. over those two two years, which yeah. is just incredible to look back on. Yeah, I think it's incredible. I think it's a great lesson for entrepreneurs too. Is like you don't you don't have to find a recession resistant or whatever they call it business, but if you can offer some type of alternative, especially lower cost in those down markets, it's it's really powerful for your growth. So let's jump into the exit story. Um, and I'm not going to make any assumptions, but I don't, it doesn't sound like you started eye contact with this giant exit in mind. So when did that enter your mind? Like when did you decide that selling the company was the right path for you? I started with this, this sort of weird um, goal that I wanted to be like the, the dot-com millionaire people. And it wasn't, it wasn't the money part of it. It was, if you think about my kind of like formative years of like 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, um, that all overlaps the absolute one-up of, of the internet age, right? And right. the early dot-com successes. I remember my girlfriend in high school's dad was just making tons of money as a, as a day trader. And, you know, he was a, a circuit federal circuit court judge that he would take some of his money and invest it in the stock market. <laughs> and he bought her a car, <laughs> in high school off of like one day's earnings off of the stock market, right? So I had all these data points around me of, you know, things, big things are happening out there and I just wanted to be part of that. So I read Fast Company Magazine and Business 2.0 and Wired and Inc. Magazine um, religiously. And I just wanted to be one of these people in the magazine because I thought that was so cool. And I had this basic tech skill set. I thought what they're doing can't be that much more complicated than what I'm able to do now. And I want to be one of those people. So it was definitely much more about trying to kind of launch myself uh, and, and become that sort of person, right? I think it was probably in a large part ego-driven. Um, as I started to started to grow the business uh, and we got to a couple million dollars in revenue, my business partner and I had this big aha moment. Um, and I'm a pretty competitive person. I grew up playing sports um, and my business partner and I really wanted this company to be something great. And we wanted it to have a big impact, um, both in, in the state of North Carolina, where there's not a ton of digital tech startups, which we thought was pretty cool, um, but also to really launch our careers and put us on the map. Um, we all wanted, we both wanted to go on and do other things, and um, we thought this could be the, the sort of pedigree that would let us do that. And so, in the back of our minds, um, we had kind of come up with this realization that a lot of companies in North Carolina, almost none of them, even the high growth ones, sell for over a hundred million dollars. And there's a good number of exits in the like 10 to $30 million range. And there's a couple more in the, you know, 50 to 80 to $100 million range. But there are very few above $100 million. Like in the last couple of years, you could count them um, on two hands. Um, and that if you take like pharma and biotech out of that and just right. go into like software and tech, um, it's, it's even less. So we wanted to be one of those standout companies. And, and this $100 million number was really stuck in our head from maybe our second or third year in when we passed a couple million dollars uh, of revenue. So maybe that'd be fourth or fifth year in actually. And this is what we were gunning for. Um, and we didn't really think as much about the exit. Mm-hmm. Um, when we started to um, raise outside capital a couple years in, we realized that at some point we would need to have a financial exit. And so the first thing we turned to in our minds was, was going public. And so internally, as we started to build our team, we built our executive team and we eventually had 350 full-time employees. We were really focusing everyone around, this is a company that we want to take and do an IPO. And we want the company to continue to operate here in North Carolina for as long as possible, creating these hundreds of jobs and high-tech jobs that we've created here uh, in a state that needs more tech and needs more tech exposure globally. and so we were really on the track to IPO. We brought in auditors, the, the big audit firm uh, that you need. We brought in Ernst & Young for the last three years. 
to make sure everything was audited to a standard that would work to become a public company. Um, and then in the end, it turns out we got bought by a public company, which, which is, was actually critical that we were preparing to be a public company because we now looked like the type of company that a public company could buy. Right. Um, we weren't the small kind of uh, disorganized startup that we used to be. We've become pretty formal and we had processes in place that allowed a company like that to buy us, which really opened up our opportunities at that point. Wow. So, I mean, going through that process of, you know, building a tech company and eventually exiting it, exiting it to a publicly traded company, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur that's listening to the show? Like you were reading Fast Company, right? And someone's listening to the show and they're saying like, I want to be like Aaron. I want to either start or buy or whatever a tech company and grow it to a hundred million dollar exit. What kind of advice would you give to that person? Do you think the the best way to summarize what I've learned is to never forget why you're doing it. I think that's what, what matters the most. And, and I just mentioned in the last story, right, that, you know, we started this company to, I started this company to kind of become one of these people, which again, is kind of a weird goal, but that is at least why I did start it. Right. And then I suddenly got focused on this $100 million number. And who's to say I was or wasn't at $5 million or at $1 million or at even $250,000 of um, I was excited when we hit those milestones. And in each one of those, I really could barely even fathom we would hit those higher milestones. Mm-hmm. I was pretty happy. Um, I think something that, that's really important that other people can do along the way that I wish I had done was it's a really simple tally. And it's not a perfect system, but to just think about how happy you are every day and to and actually quantify it. You know, when we start growing businesses, we start to quantify lots of other things like our quarterly metrics and, you know, revenue goals and operational costs and revenue per employee and profit and growth margin and all those sorts of things. Um, I, I like to work with entrepreneurs now to talk about what those metrics are for themselves. And so one I think that's one of the most important ones to start with is, is just that happiness on a one to 10 scale um, and kind of wrapping up the day at the end of the day and writing down what my number was. Was I really happy to be involved in the things that I was involved in today. And despite being an entrepreneur, I think a lot of us start our own companies so that we can have this amazing uh, flexibility and we can be our own boss and we can control our own schedules. But in reality, there's a lot of demands that just happen in order to make our businesses successful or to help them stay in business or to be the competitor to a deal or whatever it is. There's just stuff we have to do and sometimes we don't like it. Uh, And sometimes it isn't fun. And so keeping track of kind of what your personal number is, where are you? Like, are things getting less fun over the last couple of months? Are things getting more fun? Is it as fun as it has has always been? Am I as happy as I've always been? And just kind of recording that daily number and watching that trend over time, I think is, is really valuable. What I hadn't realized is that it just hadn't been fun in multiple years at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were very lucky to get a good exit. And we've had several attempts to sell the company, like many, many, many attempts to sell the company over the five or six years before our exit that had fallen through for a variety of reasons. Um, and so to get the exit at that point was, was, I think, really lucky for me. I had pulled my time back in the business. I had become just the chairman of the board and didn't have an operational role anymore. And that was, I think, because I was starting to sense that it wasn't fun anymore, but right. I hadn't really had that conversation with myself to say, you know what, there's a lot of value tied up in this business, more than I ever fathomed I would have in, in my life, and way more than I will ever need to live the type of lifestyle I need for the rest of my life without working. So why am I trying to double this year, right. <laughs> especially when my happiness is a two out of 10? Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I lost sight of, and I hope other people will do a better job with that. Yeah. And I mean, you do hear uh, those stories a lot from entrepreneurs about happiness and losing sight of that kind of stuff. I guess that pivots very nicely into my last question before you, before we let you go is, is tell us a little bit more about the book that you're working on in the project. And if there's any way that, you know, us or our listeners can help. Yeah. Thanks so much. The, uh, the book, the working title right now is called Startup Burn. And it's the, uh, the, story, the kind of secret story of what it costs to try and be successful in the digital age. I think there's a lot of tools that come from the industrial age related to physical burnout um, that help us understand, let's say, when a factory worker has worked too many hours um, or when someone working on an assembly line um, isn't sharp enough because the error rate is going up. Um, In the digital world, we haven't really developed those tools 
very well yet. And so what I'm trying to do is tell the story of lots of entrepreneurs that have um, started companies, worked to build them, and then have run into personal, mental, and physical barriers along the way. These are things like anxiety, depression. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs are diagnosed with bipolar personality disorder. It's 300% more likely among entrepreneurs. Um, um, burnout. And all of these things are um, not talked about as much as I'd like them to be talked about today. And so I'm shining a spotlight on on people that have experienced those challenges. So right off the bat, um, any entrepreneur that's building a company that's experienced any of these things, uh, I'd love to interview you for the book. I've got 11 hours of interviews with entrepreneurs so far. We hop on a Zoom call and I ask you five or six questions. And what you can share with me that I can put in the book alongside my story of going through all of these challenges um, is something I think we can use to change the world. And how I'm working directly with entrepreneurs now alongside the book is I've invented a coaching system for founders that, uh, as I mentioned before, um, there's really a lack of metrics and KPIs, key performance indicators um, around the entrepreneur themselves. Most of the structure we've seen in the last 10 years is for businesses and helping you operate the business and helping teams stay on the same page. And what I'm focusing on now with the founder operating system that I've created is a set of goals and KPIs and metrics just for the entrepreneur, for the founder, to help keep them healthy and happy and help them uh, still reach their goals and exceed their dreams while doing that. Well, I I think it's an amazing project. It definitely speaks to me and I I know a lot of other people that are really going to benefit from this. So for the listeners, we will... We'll drop Aaron's um, contact information, his LinkedIn page um, into the show notes. So if you want to reach out to him, but Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story. Great. Thanks, Jessica. Have a great day. Hey, Andy, you know what time I think it is? I think it's time to talk about our deal of the week. Deal of the week. Sold. Hey, we're back with deal of the week and we have Peter Berg, one of our tech gurus here to talk about a deal we just did in the software space. And uh, Peter is a guru because he actually came from that uh, space. So once upon a time, and he also uh, has done several deals in this space. And so Peter, why don't you tell us about the deal we have today? Okay, Andy. So we sold a company that is uh, about a 30 year old software company that's evolved and grown its software from a server software to a, to a SaaS uh, cloud-based software system. And they service municipalities and cities, and they help them run various programs within the city. All right. So they had some really good clients. And uh, I did meet with this client as well when we first uh, got it aboard. And, you know, it, it was a niche industry, obviously, and uh, very attractive, uh, but you found a strategic buyer for it? I did. So I, we found, uh, we marketed to uh, both private equity and strategics, a little bit small for a uh, private equity buyer right. uh, on the small side, unless you're in the space. And it was such a niche little business that really weren't that many private equity firms in the space. But I did find a strategic buyer that was not a direct competitor, but that all also serviced municipalities. So they felt that they could tuck this in and have another tool in their tool bag when they went, when their salesmen went in to, to pitch the cities. Great. So it was a good add-on for them. And so give us an idea of what multiples it sold for, how much it was making, and what it eventually sold for. Okay. So uh, the business sold uh, ultimately for about four times the adjusted EBITDA. And uh, the, it was about 80% down, and there was an earnout for around 20%. And the earnout was based on uh, a, just a revenue number in a specific niche. So the, the buyer was looking to grow the cloud-based part of the business and wasn't as concerned about the client-server-based part. So there was an incentive built in to grow the cloud-based business, and there was an additional uh, approximately half a million dollars of incentive to the seller. The seller also signed an employment agreement mm-hmm. and with, at, a, at a salary almost commensurate with the salary that they had, uh, that, they were, that they were paying themselves, and they agreed to stay on for at least two years in order to help execute and help integrate the software with the new company. Wow. Sounds like a great deal. And uh, it, it did it take a while to sell? It took about a year to sell, primarily because we had another buyer pr- uh, prior to that 
that was have, struggling to get financing. That was an individual buyer and uh, was never really able to put the financing together. So after that deal broke off, we decided to stick to strategic, well-financed, well-capitalized strategic buyers. And that's who we found. Once we found them, we closed within, say, five months. Great. Sounds like a good deal for our clients who wanted to move on and uh, somewhat take the foot off the pedal and uh, retire a little bit. So, Right. And what was good about it is he was able to, re- to maintain a, a healthy salary for himself and stay involved and sort of wean himself into retirement as opposed to having to go cold, cold turkey. There you go. Good deals for good people. Thanks, Peter. Welcome back, everybody. And today, as you know, we're talking to successful tech entrepreneurs that have built technology companies and had successful exits. So joining me is a friend of mine, Matt Jaffe, who is the CEO of 303 Software. And he also co-founded two startups in uh, in Colorado, the first, which is a digital health company called My Rounding, which he was able to exit in 2016. And the second is Proof, which is a legal tech venture that he started in 2017. And they're currently still growing and building that company. So Matt, thank you so much for joining the show and welcome. You're welcome, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, so let's just start a little bit about, give us like, I gave your professional introduction, but give the listeners just kind of a brief background and history about how you got started in technology. It started with an Apple II computer that my father brought home for my 12th birthday. And uh, that was unique back in the early 80s. But what was really unique was that he also brought a modem. So I got online at a really early age. And did a lot of questionable things with the modem, a lot of pirating of games and <laughs> things like, and phone freaking and things like that. Um, but what it really did was solidify my love for technology and for computers. And then when I found myself um, in my in my early twenties, uh, and the internet was just starting, the World Wide Web was just about to break. It was all very familiar. And I knew exactly what everything was, even though I had been away from the, the online space for quite a few years. So I was in a really good position to uh, become a tech entrepreneur. Uh, and that's what I did. That's great. I love the Apple II computer and the modem, right? I'm sure every every teenager got in trouble with a modem when they first got one. So I know yeah. <laughs> I know you when you started 303, you didn't necessarily start out trying to build these disruptive technologies that you're gonna, you know, exit for, but tell us a little bit about how you went from 303 software into these specialized technology companies that are providing some pretty significant disruption in their industries. It's really about people that I've had the privilege of working with. So I, I come with a very strong technology background and a product management background and a leadership background. And 303 put me in position to meet people who needed technology. And our goal was always to try to look for good business opportunities where we could partner and co-found a company. So in 2013, we met two guys who had their own healthcare consultancy, and they had an idea for an application that would be really disruptive um, to uh, hospitals. Um, they told, they explained to us that there was a a process that was happening in hospitals all over the country that was being done on sticky notes and people writing uh, notes down on their forearms and using things like Excel spreadsheets an ACD database to aggregate data. And their concept was, let's build an application that can do this process, which was nurse leader rounding, and sell it to hospitals. And that's what we did. So but really, for me, it's, a, it's being having free of free software, which is a, a, a basically like a B2B custom software development shop, um, puts me in the trajectory of a lot of up-and-coming entrepreneurs. And we're able to partner with them uh, and form new companies. Which I think is an, an amazing model. And I, I know you, so I know that you probably got really excited when they showed you this process that was happening on sticky notes that you figured you could solve through technology. Yeah. So that, that sounds yeah. like a great opportunity. But like, you know, you hear a lot about begin with the end in mind. You know, when you started my rounding and, and forming this technology with them, did you 
did you know you were building this company to sell it or were you just trying to solve a problem and, and seeing where it took you? Well, it was a little of both. We definitely wanted to build a company to sell it. I think um, it's not uncommon among entrepreneurs. And this is definitely true for myself that I'm a much better starter than I am a finisher. So we always had this idea that we could build this thing and scale it to a certain extent. Basically, we could scale it to the point of our capacity. And that once we reach our capacity, we would look for a buyer to really take it to the next level. And that's what we did. And so I know because I've heard the story before, but the, the search and the process for sale for my rounding had a few twists and turns. So, you know, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that. What did that path look like for you? Sure. So we, we were in the process of uh, fundraising when we got um, an unsolicited offer from a company that we look at as a competitor. Um, they wanted to buy the company. We had been kind of keeping our eye on them because they were a much, much larger, much more established company that sold services to the healthcare industry and who had come out publicly saying they were going to build a product to compete with ours. They'd seen the success we were having and they thought, well, we can just go into this market and take it over. Thanks to my rounding for breaking the ground for us. So, so we were always keeping our eye on them. And, and then over the course of a year or two, we kind of didn't hear from them. We heard from market intelligence that maybe their product wasn't so hot. And then out of the blue, they came and said, look, we tried to do this ourselves. We can't. We want to buy your technology. And so we started the due diligence process. And we went very, very far down the road with them to the point where we were maybe 12 hours away from signing the final document um, to confirmate the sale when another party came in with a better offer and told us that they would buy us and they would get the deal done in 90 days. So that was the big excitement. And we decided that we would go with the new company. Uh, Their offer was better and they were, frankly, a, a better company. Awesome. Good problem, right? To solve and have two good offers on the table and pivot to the one that works better for you. So that's a great problem to have. But I mean, it it, it was very exciting, but it was also really, really nerve wracking that that night in the conference room trying to decide like, you know, we either have we have to either take the offer that's on the table or we have to disengage 100 percent from our offer, turn our backs on it and pursue this new one, which has a lot of unknowns. But we all, you know, three founders all looked at each other and we decided we would go with the second offer. Yeah. I mean, it it does definitely take a lot of courage to walk away from a deal that's almost done. And I mean, I guess a great learning lesson out of that is a deal's never done until it's actually done, right? Even if you're 12 hours from the closing table. That's right. That's right. And I I tell that to folks all the time. It's like, it's not time for high fives until there's signatures on the paper. Right. So kind of like taking that as our, our next segue is like, what, what lessons have you learned along the way through this exit process and selling a business? You know, what advice would you give other entrepreneurs that are pursuing um, a company they want to build to sell in technology? Sure. So I, I, I'll speak from, from the point of view as the chief technology officer of these companies and, and recommend that you really do a good job from day one of documenting everything, that you do a good job of documenting everything from your code to the different libraries that you're using to all your processes. Because when it comes time to sell your company, those things become really, really important. And you do not want to be scrambling and looking like an amateur when you are when you have a deal on the table. You want to be able to present a really buttoned up, version of everything that you've done from day one to your potential acquirer. We spent a lot of time um, looking, you know, we spent a lot of time documenting our code, making sure that every bit of code that we had, we had the rights to own and the rights to resell. So um, a lot of times developers will do a lot of copying and pasting. They'll be trying to solve a problem. They'll find something, you know, in Google or Stack Exchange, and they'll just paste it into their code. And it solves their problem and everybody's happy. But 
they'll find out when someone's doing due diligence and doing a very deep code review that they didn't really have the right to use that code. Um, and they especially didn't have the right to sell that code to somebody else. So I would recommend being really diligent about your code quality and cleanliness and make sure you own every bit of it. I mean, that's, I mean, I could see how that could cause a huge issue down the road into a due diligence process and potentially having you to rewrite pieces of your code, right? Right. Or just have somebody walk away because they realize that, you know, we're buying you for the software, but you don't actually have the right to sell it because you've included whatever, some, some library that you thought was open source, but you didn't really look at what license it was using. And it turns out it was open source for personal use and not for commercial use, right? Mm-hmm. So just be really careful about that. Yeah. Big key distinction there. So Matt, what's next? Then, oh, so, go ahead, Matt. So, and then I would just also say, you know, document everything that you're doing around your application because it'll make the due diligence process so much smoother for you. The due diligence process is kind of like, you know, it's, it's like fundraising, but it's even more um, labor intensive because you just need to provide so much documentation to the acquiring company. And if you're trying to run a team or run a company and scramble to write all this documentation at the same time, it's going to be a lot of brain damage for you. Yeah, I think I think the biggest surprise in, in most deal processes for most entrepreneurs is just how much work due diligence is. Um, and it's truly like a, a very deep inspection process. And I a hundred percent agree with you. If you can document that stuff along the way, it just, it eliminates so much work in that the middle of the deal when you already have too much stress going on anyway. That's right. So Matt, tell us what's next for you. I mean, we know you're working on proof, which is a, a legal tech disruptor, but anything else in the future? Well, there's always, you know, at 303, we, 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 our customers are primarily second-time entrepreneurs who are out there founding their second, third, fourth, sometimes even fifth company, and uh, and then entrepreneurs who are working inside large enterprises and are trying to make some big moves. So in addition to just developing some really cool projects with some awesome clients, we I always have my ear to the ground for the next opportunity to help co-found a business and um, provide the technology component of that new business. So we have some things cooking, but I can't really talk about them yet. But as soon as I can, you'll be the first to know. Of course, I totally understand. So kind of leading into that, say we have a listener out there, second, third, fourth time entrepreneur that has a great tech idea, but doesn't know where to start. How can they get in contact with you? The best way is just to write an email to helloworld at 303software.com. Great. And we'll drop that into the show notes as well for all you listeners out there. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise. I'm sure this is very, very, very helpful to our listeners. And hopefully we'll have some new tech entrepreneurs after the show. You're welcome, Jessica. It was really fun. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for listing of the week. Hey, we're back with listing of the week and we are talking about technology again. And again, we have Peter Berg with us talking about a deal in the technology space that services uh, companies and helping them with their technology, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's an IT services company doing about $5 million in revenue. Mm -hmm. And they are your outsourced IT service provider. So this would be your the computer guy that the company would call if they needed help with Outlook or or uh, Microsoft 360 or Salesforce or if they needed servers installed or if they had basic IT problems. Right. So uh, it's a, it's a, you know, we're talking about technology and there's all kinds of services in technology world. And, you know, this is not a software company. It's not necessarily has anything that's proprietary, but it's a service company, right? Absolutely. Um, the two components of it are it has monthly recurring revenue where, well, that's they, nice. where they have clients who are paying them a retainer, whether or not they use them. So in order to be, be on call and to, to know that any of your people can pick up the phone and, and get help desk services that somebody might pay a thousand or two thousand dollars a month just to have that capability, whether or not they're using it. 
the other aspect of it is that they do uh, sales. So their people need servers, they need software, and so they're putting those those things in place. So it's probably maybe thirty percent uh, monthly recurring revenue and approximately seventy percent sales. But those sales are occurring to their monthly recurring revenue clients. So it's not like they're they have to go out every month and look for new business. Right. Is there a published price on this deal? So the asking price is a million and a half. Uh, the profit is about five hundred thousand. And uh, if it was all managed IT services, it would be more valuable. The mm -hmm. multiple would be a higher multiple. But because about 70% of the sales are in new product sales right. and not in services, right. the multiple is slightly lower. Okay, but still a three-time multiple on a half a million dollars sounds like a reasonable deal. Is there financing available? Uh, well, there, it's, it's a financeable business. That is, it's, it's got good financial records and it's a tax return business. The seller is not looking to be the bank, but it is an SBA approved, uh, pre-approved deal. Okay. Sounds like a good deal. Uh, Peter, how can people get in touch with you if they want to do learn more about this? Well, people can reach me uh, by email at pberg at transworldma.com, or they can reach me on my cell, 954-907-3007. Great. Good listing, Louis. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into our show today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review. If you have questions or suggestions for the show, visit us at tworld slash the deal board or email us at the deal board at tworld.com. You might not realize it, but life has a soundtrack. For most of us, it sounds a bit like... but you can always change the station. In hundreds of Delta Airlines destinations, you can turn your soundtrack into a global chorus. Delta, keep climbing 